Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will be, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and i have believed that i came and have believed that i came from god i came from the father and have come into the world and now i'm leaving the world and i'm going to the father his disciples said ah now you are speaking plainly and do not and not using figurative speech now we know what no we, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, But take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you once again for your word. That you speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us that you make things known that we would not be able to know if you were not to tell us, and then to illumine them by the work of your Spirit. 
that we could understand their significance. And so we pray even now as, as we think about this passage and these words of Jesus that you would help us to, to understand the significance of what they mean for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you hear what Jesus just said to us? In this world, you will have tribulation. The word that he uses there uh, has a fairly wide range of meaning. He's saying, in this world, you will have sorrow, suffering, trouble, affliction. Things will squeeze your life, pressures, sadness. I just want to ask as we even begin this, where does that connect with you this morning? Where do you feel the truth of these words of Jesus in this world, you will have tribulation. Jeff already mentioned some of this, but it, it's been a hard week, a hard season for many in our wider church body, and, and by that I mean uh, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. In uh, less than two months ago, there was a shooting at Covenant School, at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Uh, two years ago, myself and a number, well, a handful of people from this church were at that church in Nashville. We, we know what the sanctuary is like. We've walked those halls. We, we've been in the parking lot. Um, I knew the pastors from my time in Reformed University Fellowship. Both the senior and the associate pastors were RUF campus ministers at one point in time. This past Thursday, Harry Reeder, who was a senior pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church since 1999, died in a car accident, 24 years serving at that church. And then this Thursday, Tim Keller, as Jeff mentioned, a pastor who has touched many of our lives through sermons and writings and books and podcasts and just influence, went into hospice care after years of battling cancer and then died on Friday morning. In this world, you will have trouble. Where do you feel that this morning? Because what I want us to do is I want us to take those very real feelings, the difficulties and the troubles of life, and I want us to take those and hear the hope that is offered to us in Jesus where Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There is a unique hope that comes through being a Christian, through being a believer in Jesus, a hope unlike anything else in the world, a unique hope in the face of suffering and difficulty that every single one of us needs this morning. Some of you are like me, and you're a believer in Jesus. Perhaps you've been a believer in Jesus for a very long time, and we need our eyes lifted to see Jesus so that when those times of suffering and trials and hardships come, our hope is firmly rooted in Jesus. Perhaps some of you here this morning, you don't know where you're at, or this, this hope and this peace, these things that we've been speaking of and singing of in this service, they, they do not resonate in your life, or you know, I do not believe in Jesus, I do not follow Him. Let me ask you this morning to think and compare. I want you to think, what do you do with difficulties, with deep sadness, with suffering? What is your current strategy 
for dealing with these things? How, how do you plan to deal with hard things that will for certain come into your life? And I want you to think about that, and I want you to compare it to what Jesus says to us and promises us in this passage. Uh, last summer, after the shooting that happened at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park, uh, my son Liam was uh, having a hard time sleeping. Um, he had heard about what had happened, and it scared him. And while part of me as a parent wishes that, you know, you could shield your kids from having to think about these things, the reality is, is that at some point, they're going to learn about hard and sad and evil things that happen in the world. And I don't want to shelter them from the world, but I want to equip them to know how to think and how to process sad things that happen in the world. And so we started talking about it. And you realize when you're having a conversation like this that a six-year-old is pretty much like every single, every single one of us, just like the rest of us. Uh, when confronted with something scary, we want to create distance. And what God helped me to see in this moment is that I could indulge this very human tendency to try to create distance from suffering and make it seem like this is the kind of thing that would never happen around here. It doesn't happen in a place like this, which is, of course, not true. Or we could face it together with the hope of Jesus. So processing what happened, uh, Liam said something like, Dad, the place where that happened it's far away, right? It's not like our town and our neighborhood, right? I could immediately tell how he was trying to make sense of it. I don't have to be afraid because these things don't happen around here. I would never be in a place like that. And that is one way that people often try to cope with suffering. Let's just push it out of the way. In fact, about 10 years or so ago, Ann uh, Patchett, writing in the New York Times Magazine, describes the same phenomenon. Describing our desire to make sense of death and evil and suffering, she writes, we are always looking to make some sort of sense out of it in order to keep it at bay. I do not fit the description. I do not live in that town. I would never have gone to that place, known that person. The fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking your cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is and identify the ways in which you do not fit it. I find that incredibly insightful and accurate. But we can't distance ourselves from it forever. Suffering, sorrow, affliction is absolutely going to come into our lives. You can't escape it. And so what are you going to do? Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world in the midst of trouble, there is a hope that we can have in Jesus. And hope in the Bible is, is not, a, it's not a wish. It's, it's not something that's unlikely to happen that we hope will happen. Rather, hope is a present confidence and trust in God that looks forward with eager expectation based on the certainty that God is going to do everything that he promised. And this is what we can have through Jesus, not a wish, not a vague optimism that looks on the bright side, 
but a confident expectation in God, in Jesus, that he will do all that he's promised. And so let's look at this text together. If you don't have it out, uh, please uh, pull out the bulletin, pull out the text. And there's two things that Jesus teaches us about the hope that we can have through him that I want us to think about. The first is why we can have this hope in him. And then the second, what he gives us right now to hope in him. So first, why we can have this hope in him. And here's the reason that we're going to see in the passage. The reason why we can have this hope in Jesus, this confident, expectant hope, is because Jesus' death and resurrection gives birth to this hope. Meaning, it's rooted in what he has done, what he has accomplished, what he has won. Jesus is saying in this passage, something is about to happen that will forever change the world. My death and resurrection is going to result in, it's going to give birth to God's promised future. We can see this in three ways in our passage. So first, the the opening discussion of of the confusing words that the disciples don't understand that Jesus said. Uh, Second, technical terms that Jesus uses. And then third, this metaphor of the woman giving birth. So the first, if you look at the opening four verses, 16 through 19, There's this back and forth between Jesus and the disciples, right? Where they're trying to make sense out of what he's saying in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. A little while, and you will see me no longer. We understand Jesus is going to die. He's going to the cross. And again, a little while, and you will see me. But Jesus will rise from the dead. They will see him again. And it is in this, Jesus' death and resurrection, that gives birth to this hope. Second, notice uh, John uses some uh, technical language. Uh, He uses a few uh, phrases or words that just are packed full of meaning. So Jesus uses this word, our, three times in the passage. Verse 21 25 and 32. And then two times he uses this phrase, in that day, verse 23 and 26. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about his hour. And it refers to his death, his exaltation and victory that's coming through his death and this dawning of a new age, the age of the Messiah and the kingdom of the Messiah. And the phrase, in that day, likewise points to the last days, the end of the age and the dawning of the new. And I get this, this might be kind of hard for us to grasp, but what Jesus is saying is through his death and resurrection, God's future age, the reign of God's Messiah, is breaking into this world. Recently, I was talking with a man who's not a Christian, and he asked me, uh, for some reason, this is a question that sometimes I get asked a lot, so when's the end of the world? So, you know, like, when, when is the, when's the world going to end? And he looked at me rather shocked when I gave the answer that I think Jesus would give. If Jesus were here today and you asked him, Jesus, when will the end times begin? He would look at you and he would say, they already have. They started through my death and resurrection. 
This world is going to continue on until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. This world of of sin and death and brokenness and sorrow and suffering. This world that's resistant to God. And yet, there is, through Jesus, this breaking in of the new age. And for those who believe in Jesus, the realities of that promised world can be tasted and experienced now. Finally, consider the metaphor of this, the woman giving birth. Jesus says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Again, he's talking about his death, how his death, his hour of suffering, it's like this woman that's going into labor. But from that sorrow and pain, there's going to be joy a new way of life is going to be born into this world. And for us to, to understand what he's saying here, and I think to ex- let's extend the metaphor that Jesus uses here, this illustration of, of having birth. Some of you in this congregation know exactly what that experience is like. I do not. Um, but when you go through the pain of childbirth and you have the baby, then what? I'm recalling Aaron's experience there's still a lot of pain in your body. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. There are many sleepless nights that are coming. There are frustrations. There are new parental struggles that are going to come in the weeks that follow. We could call these, in a sense, the in this world you will have tribulation parts, and yet there is new life. There is something that has happened that will forever change your family. A new life has been born. A new age has entered. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this passage. He's saying to us, we can have confidence, we can have courage and hope in the midst of great affliction because he has won. The new age has already broken in and this new life is already something that we can begin to experience for those of us who believe in him. It's not a wish. It's not being optimistic. It's not blind faith. The certainty of the hope is rooted in the concrete historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished. And so let's consider this other thing that we see in the passage, that how Jesus gives us things now to help us to hope in him. And I'm going to briefly mention four that we can see here. Joy, prayer, knowledge of God, and peace. Joy. Jesus gives us joy that is quite literally not of this world. It's not based on the things of this world. It's not based on the circumstances of this world. It is joy, I think we could rightly say, joy from the age to come that through Jesus breaks into our present experience. Jesus says uh, his disciples, verse 20, will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And it will be like the joy that is greater than the pain and the anguish that a mother experiences in childbirth. It, It is a joy because a child has been born in the world. New life has come. It is a joy, verse 22, that they will have and no one can take away. And we see this, we see a concrete example of this in Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
Paul writes this letter, if you remember, from prison. And yet it is a letter that is filled with joy and rejoicing. And it would make no earthly sense because every circumstance is against Paul. He's in prison. He could possibly die. He's been shamed. He's unable to be out doing what he loves to do, planting churches, serving churches. People are against him. People are stirring up trouble for him. And yet he is full of joy. Jesus gives us joy. Second, prayer. Asking in Jesus' name. Look at, look at verse 23. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then again in verse 26 he says, In that day you will ask in my name. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? And how is it that the disciples have not done this yet? Did they miss out on the secret passcode thing they were supposed to say? Like, like, you see, praying in Jesus' name is not just a tagline that we say on the end of our prayers, although there's nothing wrong with tagging it on to the end of our prayers, but it is praying through the one who is the risen and ascended king, which is why the disciples have not done this yet. They can't pray like this until Jesus has resurrected and been and ascended. Jesus as the risen and ascended king is in the place of power now. He has won. He has been victorious over death and evil and sin and the grave. And as we pray in his name, we're praying as one united to him by the Spirit. And our prayer is to correspond to his his character and who he is and his desires. This, This is the prayer where a Christian prays things according to the will of Jesus, but as we are also, as we read his word, we're we're bent and conformed to more and more love what Jesus loves and desire what he desires. And so ask the things that Jesus wants to do and is going to do, and then we get the joy of seeing him do it. He says in verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Third, knowledge of God. In our previous passage, a few verses earlier, chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says this to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There is much that the disciples could not understand yet. They were confused. They didn't understand the cross and the resurrection. They didn't understand that Jesus must die and rise again to fulfill the scriptures and that this was actually at the center of all that God had been revealing, that all history and all of the revealing God had done throughout history was pointing to this. Verse 25, Jesus says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The hour is coming, Jesus says to his disciples, and for us, it is a present reality that there is a greater revelation and knowledge of God Knowledge of what God has revealed in the scriptures about Jesus. How it's all about Jesus and his death and resurrection. I mean, even think like the disciples were with Jesus and they heard his teaching and they saw his miracles and yet 
they, at this moment, as Jesus is speaking to them, do not fully understand the implications of all of that in a way that we can right now. I want you to try to just appreciate the privileged place that we stand right now. When Jesus first spoke these words, right, the disciples had lived with him, they had seen him, they, they knew him personally, and yet they didn't have what we can have this morning through Jesus. Knowledge of God. Doesn't this make you want to read the Bible? I mean, reading the Bible and seeing how it is all pointing to Jesus, understanding the revelation of the New Testament and what the Spirit helped the witnesses, Jesus' apostles, to remember and write down, and the Spirit who helps us to appreciate the significance of what's written, to read the whole story of the Bible and see where it's all going. This is the thing that cultivates our hope. Prayer. Doesn't this make you want to pray, to think about, I can pray in and through the one who is at the place of power at God's right hand right now, who is the sovereign king? Joy. That I have access to joy and you have access to joy through Jesus. Joy of another world. And finally, peace. Jesus says, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I don't remember where exactly he said this, but I'm remembering something Tim Keller said, wrote, or I heard him, you know, one of the many things that he said about how being at peace with God makes all the difference in the world when it comes to suffering. His point was very simple and yet profound. If you don't know the peace of God in and through Jesus, how do you think you're going to interpret the bad things that happen in life, that will happen in life? Will you not be tempted to think, God is against me? Will you not be tempted to think that the deepest, darkest parts of life, the things that happen to you, my sins have finally found me out. God is paying me back for what I did. Or maybe you don't even believe in God, but still, what, what are you going to do with your failures? What do you do with your failures right now? Do you ignore them? Do you make excuses? Do, do you hide? Do you numb yourself? Do you hate yourself? It is a recipe for bitterness, anger, self-hatred, and depression. But the peace of Jesus can change that. Because a Christian knows something. All of my sin has been dealt with. Whatever bad things happen to me, it is not because God doesn't love me, or God is against me, or God is paying me back. We're going to sing in a few minutes something that a Christian can sing with confidence. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Jesus has won. He has defeated our sin. Did you notice what's going on in the passage when he promises peace to the disciples? It's right where he's telling them that they're all going to fail him. Verse 32. You're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. 
You all said that you weren't going to do it. You said that you would stand with me to the point of death. You all, Peter was the really boastful one, but you all agreed with him that you weren't going to do that, but yet you are going to fail. It's not true what you said. You don't know how weak you are. You don't know how sinful you are. You don't know how great you're going to fail. How does Jesus respond to their failure? Verse 33, I want you to know that you have peace in me. Is that how you relate to your failure? Some of us, I think, in a really messed up way, and I do it too, we are harder on ourselves in our failure than Jesus is, who is the right judge and the supreme Lord. What would it be like to know the peace of Jesus in your failures? You see, a Christian has the peace of Jesus. And so in the midst of trials and tribulations and afflictions and sufferings, the most important relationship, the most important love and acceptance is something that you have. And so your life might feel shattered and your body might be breaking up and you might have messed up big time and yet you can have peace. And there is so much more than even these things that I've mentioned. I've just mentioned the few things that I've noticed in this passage. On Thursday morning, I was driving uh, our kids to school, and uh, I asked Liam if he'd be okay with me sharing the story that I shared earlier, and he said, yeah, it's totally cool. Um, He and Abby are still at the age where it's like cool to be mentioned in a sermon. I know that is going away soon. But later Thursday evening, we were having dinner, and one of our practices at, at dinner has been to go around the table and share, uh, you know, what's a high and what's a low of your day? And when it came to Erin, uh, mom, she mentioned uh, the sadness about hearing about Tim Keller going into hospice, and I shared as well that it was a low moment for me that day, and kind of has been this week, because I don't think there's another person um, that has influenced me more in terms of ministry and the gospel and what it means to be a pastor um, than Tim has. And not long after this, um, after dinner, Liam said, um, I'm glad you're going to preach about this uh, because I need more comfort, which is a strange thing for a seven-year-old to say. With the exception of Where did he get that language? Comfort. We all just confessed it. Week in, week out, one of the most common confessions of faith that we use is Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And those were actually the words last summer that we had used to unpack and process how we deal with being afraid of suffering and troubles, and the real reason why we can have confidence and comfort and hope in life or in death, because I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to Jesus. My sins have been paid for The enemy has been defeated. I have peace with God. 
My Father loves me. He watches over me. He has sent the Spirit to help me know that I am a child of God. The same Spirit who helps me to live and persevere and abide in Jesus. And if you can say those words, and if those words resonate in your heart, then you have a hope that can get you through anything. A hope rooted in Jesus' death and resurrection. Amen. Let me invite us to turn to a time of prayer. Each week after we hear God's word, we turn to God, confessing the ways that this past week we have turned from him, we have sinned against him, being honest with him. He invites us to do this, that he might assure us of his favor and of the peace that we have in Christ. And so let me invite us now to spend a few moments in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a moment's time.